0: It's 23.30 in New Delhi, 1900 in Brussels, 1800 here in London, and 1300 in Toronto. You're listening to Monocle24. Monocle's House View starts now. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The court has pointed it out, but has done nothing to restore the fundamental rights of the people. As India's top court orders a review of the internet blackout in Kashmir, we'll ask whether the world's largest democracy is doing enough to give everyone a voice. Somnath Bhatbial and Robin Lustig will be discussing that. Plus, we'll be celebrating the merits of the Erasmus programme as Brexit threatens the movement of young people around Europe. We'll also be hearing from the CES Tech Fair in Las Vegas.
1: There's always been a strong balance between what is mainstream, um, Sony's latest TV or uh, LG's latest headphones, um, and then the quirky and off the wall stuff.
0: And hearing why it's been a big week in Canada, too. I'm Tom Edwards. Monocles House View starts now. Welcome to the program. India's Supreme Court has ordered a review of the suspension of internet services in the contested region of Kashmir. The government of leader Narendra Modi imposed the communications restrictions before removing Kashmir's autonomy last August. The region's been without the internet since. The treatment of Kashmir by the government is a contentious issue. And earlier, Monocle's Georgina Godwin was joined by journalist Robin Lustig and academic Somnath Batabyal to hear more about it.
2: Beyond saying that this is illegal and people must have their fundamental rights restored. The court has pointed it out, but has done nothing to restore the fundamental rights of the people. This is the most important point. That it's, it's, it's In a sense, I read the judgment. It's a beautifully worded judgment, quotes Charles Dickens and the rest, but does nothing concrete. There are two very fundamental reasons for the modern nation state to exist. One is to provide security to its citizens. The other is to ensure that they live a good life. You know, the liberty, uh, fundamental rights are respected. The court has fallen in between this, that it understands the security context, or at least says that it understands the government's concerns and the ability to balance out the liberty of people in Kashmir. The problem is not only in Kashmir. Every time in India in the past few months, people have chosen to say no to the government's uh, citizenship amendment bill. Wherever there is a problem, the government has shut down the internet. Even in a major city like Calcutta, certainly for four days there is no internet. In Assam, when the protests started, there have been no... So this has become almost... They're almost uh, legitimising this as, and If there is trouble, we shut down communication. Mm. You know? And slowly, if this carries on, we will start to accept this as normal. And the court's judgment is important in saying that please review, but I'm afraid it doesn't go far enough to stop a government which is really out of hand at the moment. I was in India for the past week. I was in Jawaharlal Nehru University when the masked hoodlums, apparently members of a student youth faction which is pro-government, walked into a university campus and started their absolutely unimaginable assault. And the police, in front of my eyes, escorted them out. You know, so this is, I mean, it's really a situation to worry about at this point of time.
3: I always find it very interesting to look at how... Uh, supposedly democratic governments react to court rulings which they don't like. Um, And if one looks at the British example, uh, within the last 10-15 years, there have been several occasions on which court rulings have gone against the government, particularly on issues regarding terrorism, and what the governments have tended to do is to change the law, to take account of what the court has said, and to try to get around the court ruling so that the government can carry on doing what it wants to do. What's going to interest me now is to see whether the Indian government tries something similar. If it does not want to do what the Supreme Court has suggested it needs to do in order to remain legal, then, of course, it does have an option of trying to change the law. It brings into question the Constitution and all of that. But I do find it interesting... In what is meant to be the world's greatest democracy, which, among other things... I mean, is
2: largest, I would say, not the greatest at the moment. <laughs> La- I meant largest.
3: You're right. <laughs> yeah. um, part of a democracy is adherence
2: to the law. Yeah. And we shall see. Mm. You know, it's, If I may respond to that, um, it's an interesting point that you make. But the government at this point has gone against two things. One is... To take back Article 370 in Kashmir, the other is changes to the Citizenship Amendment Act. So, and for both, I mean, Kashmir, a bit more muted reaction, but the Citizenship Amendment, um, the reaction has been quite virulent from people all over the country. So, again, a change in the fundamental rights to citizens might not come through, but it's a point which one should keep an eye out on they're very mm. correct
4: mm. and i mean obviously it's it's not just people's ability to, to communicate with each other it's, it's freedom of the press too. yeah
2: it's freedom of the, but it's it's livelihood you know people in kashmir friends in kashmir cannot buy tickets to an airline they go to the airport to see what flight is available and buy it on the spot people can't uh, do their business on internet uh, students can't apply to courses, uh, to colleges uh, beyond Kashmir, it's an impossible. To, imagine that all forms of communication are taken away from you today. I mean, this could have happened 50 years ago when you know when we were communication in such a mode was impossible. But in Delhi, a Kashmiri student cannot apply today, or in any part of the country. You have just cut it off and saying that a supposed terrorist networks use internet. Well, you have to deal with it because this is the reality of the situation. This is how you operate.
4: Mm. But but I mean, Robin, in a long career in journalism, I mean, you would remember pre-internet days. It is possible... <laughs>
2: Well, it was possible. I don't think it is possible now anymore. For, for, for the so, I mean, colleges were not offering online courses, absolutely. right, or online admissions in fifty years ago. Yeah. It, it's a bit like cutting down. You fifty know, years a, is too far. Maybe twenty yeah. years. I'm right. <laughs> sorry, Robin. but, but go, go back, <laughs> Well, I do remember fifty years.
4: Uh, but, but go back Yeah, exactly.
3: Uh, go back thirty years. I mean, it's, it, it's as if you'd sort of cut down the mail system, yeah. and you'd yeah. suddenly said there will be no postal system. Uh, you you absolutely restrict people to communicate, to do business, to Uh, just basically get on with daily lives. The internet now is a part of daily life virtually everywhere in the world. It is a breach of basic liberties to say there will be no internet.
0: Robin Lustig and Somnath Batabial there talking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Tom Edwards. Now, the Erasmus programme, the EU-funded initiative which allows students across Europe to find work or attend education in another country across the block, has opened many doors of collaboration and opened even more young minds. But post-Brexit, the UK's involvement in the programme is in doubt. Joining me in the studio to discuss why student exchange programmes such as Erasmus are indeed a most beneficial addition to any education programme are Monocle's Marco Sippi, Jolene Goffin, themselves Erasmus alumni and Paige Reynolds is here too. Marcus, let's start with you. As an Erasmus participant, why is this programme so important?
5: Oh, it's, it's, it's quite hard always to explain what a difference living abroad in a different culture makes in the long term. I went to Liverpool in January 2001 and that was the beginning of quite an adventure. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm here sitting with you Tom actually. So it's it's basically, you know, going to another country spending there maybe six months, a year that's an amazing opportunity. People use it different ways. Sometimes, you know, people who go to other countries through Erasmus Exchange do that party to learn another language. I knew people who went to Spain for example to learn Spanish, returned there from there after 12 months with an amazing command of that language. Sometimes there are some other interests and they could go and learn about their special subjects they wanted to learn. Or sometimes you just go outside of your home country and you just want to experience something different and you make new friends. And as a result... After that six months I spent in Liverpool, I've got friends from all over the Europe and I feel more connected with so many European countries than ever before. I think this exchange simply means different things to different people. And also you have to remember that obviously it does have very much academic value as well. It makes such a difference to have people from different backgrounds joining classes, joining tutorials, giving their views in an academic environment.
0: And indeed a measure of your immersion in the UK experience... The fact we sit here two decades later and you are a British citizen. I
5: know, I know. And let's, let's remember that Robert Bound, our colleague, wrote about Erasmus Exchange in the Monocle Minute and he pointed out that his friend married someone he met through Erasmus Exchange. As well, sometimes they're party holidays. As well, I can't deny that partly. So,
0: so it's brought uh, Finland and the UK together. It's brought Belgium and the UK together as well. Yolene, is that a similar sense you share? Presumably, Marcus's perspective that it's it's not just academically expansive. It's life. It's life enhancing.
6: Absolutely. I 100% agree with Marcus that I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for my Erasmus experience, which was in 2007. I was 19 years old and I moved to Paris for six months. It was the the first time you move away from your country, also a smaller city. I was I was studying in Ghent, which is a smaller provincial student town, to then move to Paris, a big world capital, was a massive big deal for me. Um, a really amazing experience meeting lots of people from France, but also from Germany, Portugal, Spain, England. I had lots of English friends. Um, I got mugged for the first time. <laughs> I mean, you got to experience those things in big cities. And it did give me, um, for the first time, the love of a big metropolitan world capital, which I think in the end, I ended up here in London for some
5: no no coincidence perhaps. I think we should talk about the value of Erasmus Exchange. So it's not just universities sending students to other universities. It's also about funding to enable people to widen their horizons. So when you go to another country, depending on how long you stay there, you get funding and that funding will cover for your flights. It will also probably cover for at least part of your accommodation in the country where you go to. And, and when you think of people in many European countries who are not that well off, it's about equality as well, offering people opportunities. And And it's not about how much money you've made or how much money your parents have made. And I think that's one of the great aspects of this exchange. So there's something
0: uh, very equalising about it. But I guess, Paige, even if people may be a little cynical about the specifics of this setup or other programmes like it, your experience is slightly different. You weren't on the Erasmus exchange. You went to study in Russia, of course, not eligible for that. But you had the same experience from going to be in in Moscow, from studying there. Um, And I guess your experience... In a sense, it does echo that of Jolene and Marcus because it shows that it's about the worldview that you are buying into and whether whether or not you're part of an official program, that is worth something that no education in a way can, can confer on you.
7: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I remember actually, kind of just on what Marcus was saying about the subsidies. I remember being quite frustrated that that wasn't actually uh, uh, something that I was able to to take advantage of. I did European studies, so I had a lot of uh, friends who were going to sort of France, uh, Belgium, Spain, Germany, um, but I went to to Russia. But I had again, I had a really similar experience. And I think also, I think it was actually the first time that I was truly really independent because I think when you go to university in in a place that's culturally quite similar you can sort of rest on your laurels a bit you don't feel too out of your comfort zone I think moving to a completely foreign place you're finally sort of pushed to that that next level of of adulthood and I think that that's really important uh, as well um for me also uh it's weird it feels like a very small amount of time a year you don't think it kind of can change the course of, of what you do with your life but I've, I've maintained a, a lifelong interest in in Russia it was actually being in Russia that uh, maybe decide to go into journalism or think about journalism as a career for the first time lots of people start year abroad blogs like I did that for me got got picked up by a newspaper in Moscow they asked me to come in and I sort of got introduced to, to the news really um, and writing and that was that was really really important I think that happens for a lot of a lot of students as well.
0: I think from what you've all said, the advantages of these programmes are very clear. Maybe just finally, though, what's at risk? Is it, Yolene more almost about what it says about the UK's continuing drift away from our European friends and this this disconnection with the wider world? Is that the biggest risk if we don't sort out our ongoing commitment to programmes like this? What's the biggest risk if we fail to continue to engage?
6: I think it's about engagement with other people from other countries and just on a very basic level having conversations at that age as well you're young you meet new people you meet new perspectives you you meet partying you meet in a more loose environment uh, which enables you to just learn from each other I Mm. think that's just a basic principle that would lose.
5: Let's remember two things. So during the EU referendum campaign, we were told that the UK was not, the UK was only leaving the European Union, not leaving Europe. And when we talk about, you know, what the European Union was created for—to bring peace to Europe, to make nations understand each other—this kind of exchange programs do have a massive value. And I think, regardless how the UK feels about the European Union, I think it's it's a shame if this country is not going to participate in that exchange in the future to create that understanding between different nations, to send young people of this country to other countries to to learn about their cultures and just create friendships and whatever that brings with it.
0: Marcus Hippie, Ampage and Jürgen Goffin, thank you all very much. In a moment, we'll be talking tech. You're with Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned.
4: On Meet the Writers this week, join me, Georgina Godwin, as I talk to Sophie Hanna. She's one of the most successful crime fiction novelists in Britain, dominating the bestseller lists. And she also channels one of the most successful crime fiction novelists in Britain, taking up where Agatha Christie left off and continuing the stories featuring the Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. Additionally, she's a poet, her work is studied in schools, she teaches thriller writing at degree level and she believes that holding grudges might just be one of the secrets to happiness. That's Sophie Hannah on Meet the Writers, premiering this Sunday at 1400 London time and thereafter available as a podcast.
0: This is Monocle's House View. I'm Tom Edwards. CES is the world's gathering place for all those who thrive on the business of consumer tech. It's served as the proving ground for innovators and breakthrough technologies for 50 years, the global stage where next-generation innovations are introduced to the marketplace. Our technology correspondent, David Phelan, has just returned from Las Vegas, where the event's happening, and he spoke to Georgina earlier all about it. There's always been
1: a strong balance between what is mainstream, um, Sony's latest TV or uh, LG's latest headphones, um, and then the quirky and off-the-wall stuff, those things that you never expected you'd see, uh, which are are always headline-grabbing and very often don't come to to prove to be more useful yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely
4: yeah uh, let's talk about some of the mainstream because there were some quite extraordinary and very very large televisions
1: yes um i suppose the real standout is the wall from samsung which uses uh, not none of the technologies that we've used before for tvs but something called micro leds uh, which has the advantage uh, that oled has that uh, it um, each individual pixel is uh Individually illuminated, so you get great contrast, great deep black colours, but works in a whole new different way. To the extent that it's modular, you can buy panels that are about a foot wide and assemble them into a bigger wall. And indeed, they had a 292 inch TV uh, displaying uh, really very impressive visuals.
4: Mm. Uh, What does that mean, though, for the domestic market? I mean, obviously, you're not going to have that in your home, are you? Um,
1: Well, you may do if you're a (laughs) multi millionaire. but I suppose what it is is it's a, it's planting a, a flag in the, the the sand, saying that the um, science fiction ideal of walls that turn into TVs is now not as far off as, as we once thought it was.
4: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the quirky stuff then.
1: Well, there was certainly plenty of that. Um, the, one of there was a lot of influence of um, things like AirPods. Everyone is making in ear true wireless uh earbuds and some of them were very straightforward jbl uh had colorful ones um technics had super high quality uh ones and then there was lg which had they look kind of nice and they sounded good but the interesting thing was that the the thing about airpods and most other uh Uh, headphones like those is that the case recharges the earbuds when you put them in that's the case with the uh, lg tone free but also there's a uv led light inside so that it can um cleanse the uh, earbuds when they're in there and burn the uh, the um, germs off which is handy if you've just lent your your uh, earbuds to someone and you're not quite (laughs) sure about their hygiene I suppose that that was um, a a sort of a a standout and talking of hygiene the Y brush uh, this was announced last year but it's now actually something you can buy Um, uh, it it comes out in the next month or two Um, it's it's a sort of a a crescent shaped toothbrush with lots of brushes inside it so you press it onto your upper teeth and then your lower teeth for five seconds each time and it will uh, brush your teeth in that time.
4: Wow, the amount of time saved!
1: That's right, you still have to floss um, so <laughs> and don't neglect that but yes that is, is a big change that uh, that was um, uh, you know that, um, absolutely pushed quite hard this year and then there were smart cooker knobs that you attach to your existing cooker so that if you've ever gone out and thought oh did I did I leave the stove on you can check on your smartphone app and turn the the, the knobs off remotely if you need
4: extraordinary and a, and a very clever shower too
1: oh yes um, the Cola, which obviously make a lot of very uh, good uh, bathroom equipment, um, have uh, uh, created a shower with a speaker in it. That's not the first to do that, but this is an Alexa-enabled speaker, so you can you can demand that it plays the next track or changes what you're listening to uh, with your voice
4: how wonderful so you theoretically could be showering and say Alexa play Monocle 24 oh
1: absolutely
4: (laughs) Uh, very quickly before we go a couple of cars now Uh, we've already talked about the tiny little fire truck yes uh, um, but uh, Sony had uh, another vehicle yes
1: this was a real surprise amazing that they managed to keep it secret Sony are developing and have built a car it's only a prototype for now but it it drives uh, and it will be a a driverless car it has 33 cents so that it can uh, be pleasant to be inside and it can be safe uh, for the other users on the road. Sony have always had brilliant uh, photographic sensors and they will be employing these to to make it much safer for the the, the car to drive itself. And Mercedes had one designed in conjunction with James Cameron. Um, It's a prototype and it looks like something out of Avatar with breathing fins that change colour and flex and wheels that change colour as you drive along.
0: That was David Phelan talking to our Georgina Godwin. Finally today on the programme to Canada, Monocle's resident Canuck, Daniel Bache, is here with a clutch of stories that have been making the headlines in the Great North. Daniel, welcome. Um, Plenty to talk about. Mm -hmm. Buildings, beards, that's just the bees. Let's start with facial hair. Um, Justin Trudeau, is this a case of him once again making headlines for all the wrong reasons? I'm not so sure about this. This is him coming back
8: to work after the holidays sporting uh, a salt and pepper beard. I'm curious about the beard, though, because he can't really grow it up on the cheeks, like if he's had it trimmed or if he just can't grow a full beard. So that's what it looks like.
0: He used to dabble heavily in the goatee, he I've been had a really
8: yeah in the yeah. When was that in the nineties or maybe like ten years ago? He had this this very tailored goatee, which was more like a Guy Fox thing going on. I don't know it was happening there, but this, I mean, I think Canadians look at it and they go, eh, yeah, okay, well, whatever. I don't know. I don't think he's trying to make a statement here at all. It's curious because. Everyone quickly compared it to the time his father, 40 years ago, came back from a canoeing trip in the Northwest Territories with a, a beard and ha- hadn't you know combed his hair, what hair, little hair he did have as a, as a balding guy. But really interesting, I, the parallel that I saw is there was a release this week from uh, Trudeau's official photographer, a guy called Adam Scotty, where everyone saw the, the beard and they're like, oh, well, now Trudeau's got a new look and he's going for a new thing. But the first time Canadians were hearing him speak was in a very somber and quite Sad and measured tone yesterday when he was talking about the um, the attack in Iran and and the, the many dozens of Canadians that were killed in that. So there's no real laughing there. And interestingly, his father, 40 years ago, the first time he spoke with that beard, that everyone's like, "Oh, what's happening with his beard?" Uh, he was talking about the sudden death of a former prime minister, uh, John Diefenbaker. So it's again, it was like Canadians didn't really get a chance to have a laugh at it. So mm. it's 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 a curious one, but I think. Where he has had really bad gaffes with images with image in the past, I mean, obviously the blackface thing and, and going to India and dressing up and all that stuff, I think those are really faux pas. And I, I think, as I said, in this case, people are just like, yeah, well, it, it, it's a beard. Um, people are, are over it.
0: But just very briefly, does it, do you think it speaks to the fact that he's being scrutinised in mm. a jocular way or a more serious way, Yeah, in a way that is problematic for him because he was the golden boy for a while. We've talked yeah. before about the problems he faces in terms of plunging popularity and all that. Does this show, you know, that Trudeau has work to do to kind of be taken seriously afresh by his fellow countrymen.
8: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think he has to really step up and show that he can be the leader, he can be the face of, of Canada, with whiskers or not. Uh, and I think he has uh, quite a bit of work to do there still to, to win back some trust and to to, to be the this, this strong guiding hand that's leading the country.
0: He needs to step up. Let's continue up, up and mm. away. Uh, Torontonians can yeah. perhaps soon be claiming another feather in their bow. Um Another feather in their cap. Yeah, the one of the the second tallest city, perhaps in North America. This is quite exciting.
8: Yeah, uh, they could surpass Chicago with all the projects that are going on or planned in Toronto, according to Bloomberg. Uh, Toronto would uh, have the second most skyscrapers, uh, something like 67 behind, only, of course, New York City uh, and all those Trump Towers and other buildings. But interestingly about this, if Toronto were to become the second tallest city in North America, they would bump past... Chicago, which I always said uh, is sort of the city Toronto could have been because they did a really good job with their waterfront and it's, it's quite nice. There are a lot of similar uh, similarities between those two cities. But uh, Toronto a few years ago surpassed Chicago in terms of population. So it became the fourth
0: biggest city in North America. So maybe uh, Chicago is
8: going to have it out for Toronto. Who knows?
0: They're on the way. Watch this space mm. just finally. Another story from your neck of the woods. Tell yeah. us more.
8: Uh, yeah, well, uh, big news and uh, talking point this week uh, in the UK, also in Canada, because it turns out that uh, perhaps Harry uh, and Meghan, uh, Duke and Duchess of Sussex, may be moving to Toronto, where Meghan actually lived uh, for seven years. I don't know exactly where she lived, but they shot Suits, the show she was on in my neighbourhood uh, for many years. So so that was always the hubbub around that was always happening, um, Harry in town. So I think... It's always. I always think of this as: Is Toronto the global city that everyone there thinks it is, or is it still on the way up, or is it uh, the fact that Toronto has arrived long ago and, and this it's a just like a Los Angeles or anywhere else, obviously on a smaller scale? But I think now, um, Torontonians, um, I think they're they're curious about it, but it's not it's not a big
0: deal because so much is already happening in Toronto. Indeed um, Just in case you're wondering there listeners that's not a story about the British Royals it was an urbanism story about Toronto <laughs>
8: Correct I, I have a very very robust filter about yeah. these things Yeah it was, uh, it was uh, a re- I mean we could have it can be a real estate story as well on uh, on how they can do. afford uh, a massive mansion Yeah so uh,
0: Daniel thanks very much plenty of fascinating stories out of Canada as always that's all from Daniel and that's all for today's programme Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall our studio manager was Louis Allen We'll be back at the same time on Monday. That's 1800 London time. Of course, I'm Tom Edwards. Until then, goodbye.